Welcome back to another episode of the Darren Batchelder Multifamily Real Estate Investing Show. Today we have a very special guest, Sean Griffith, a multifamily real estate investor and founder of TWT Multifamily. With a total portfolio of approximately 18 properties, including four properties consisting of 800 units and $80 million in assets under management as a general partner. Sean's expertise stretches across the multifamily real estate landscape, having transitioned from a career spanning manufacturing to IT, Sean brings a unique problem-solving perspective to real estate investing. Stay tuned as we delve into his journey, his strategies, and his insights on multifamily investing. But before we get started, if you're a high net worth individual looking to preserve your capital and build your wealth responsibly by investing in multifamily real estate, visit darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call and schedule your discovery call. This episode is sponsored by Cashflow Portal, real estate syndication software that accelerates capital raising. I'm both an LP and a GP in many multifamily deals. I've used many different software applications for the capital raising process, and I like Cashflow Portal the most. I'm so confident in the software and the Cashflow Portal team that I've become an investor in the company. If you are a syndicator looking for a software platform, then let the Cashflow Portal team know that you heard about them on Darren's podcast and you will automatically receive three months off an annual contract. You can find the company at cashflowportal.com. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Sean Griffith. Sean, appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, Darren. Thanks for having me on. Really looking forward to it. Absolutely. So a little bit on how we know each other. Uh, Sean and I are, uh, both live in the DFW area, and we are both uh, members of a multifamily mentorship group, the Brad Sumrock Group. Um, and I remember we, we got introduced early when when Sean was getting involved with the group and um, he's been killing it since. So I am looking forward to hearing what he's been up to. Um, with that, can you share with the audience, um, the listeners, how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Yeah, sure, Darren. I've got four properties as a general partner. We have our fifth one under contract right now. Once we wrap that one up, that'll put us uh, right at 800 units, uh, which will be about 80 million assets under management. And then we're also invested in about 14 or 15 LP deals. I, I don't track those quite as closely as I do my GP deals. I spend a lot more time on the GP deals. Sure. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm LP, KP, GP, and, and the GP deals, you know, are the ones that you're active in. And those are the ones you're going to spend the most time on. You have other people that are managing the, the ones that you're an LP in. So um, what is your background? How did you come into this space? Uh, well, so if you go way back to college, I'm a math and computer science guy. I went in the Navy, was commissioned, did my time, got out, 
and uh, thank went you to for work. your service. Yeah, went to work for Texas Instruments, which was kind of funny because they they hired me right out of the Navy as a manufacturing engineer. And, and when we got to the end of the interview and they offered me the job, I said, you know, don't take this the wrong way. I said, I want the job, but you realize I have no manufacturing experience and I'm not an engineer. And they go, yeah, we know that. We're hiring you for your military expertise and you know, we'll teach you everything you need to know. Okay, as long as everybody's clear with that, it was cool. So I got in there and then I, I, I pivoted later uh, because they have a very open program for being able to move inside the company. And I was in their defense group and ended up, you know, doing uh, test equipment software, which sounds kind of boring, except when you realize you're testing things like missiles. So, <laughs> right, right. That's, yeah, that's, that's not right. That has a little bit of an impact, right? It does. So proficient in, in analysis, proficient in you know, testing software. Um, so when you get involved in a GP role, what kind of role do you play within a group? of? You know, that's a great GPs? question. And I, and I get asked that a lot, but you know, what, what do you, what do you bring to the team? I'm kind of the Swiss army knife for the team. When there's a problem, they pull me out and say, here's the problem, go fix it. One of the things I've done throughout my corporate career is people will always come to me and go, Hey, I've got this problem or this challenge, or I need to find out this piece of information. And you know, 90% of the time, I don't have the solution. Um, I can't fix the problem, but I always know who to send them to. So I've always been a connector. And, you know, that's proven very useful, you know, when you have a problem and you run up against it. Uh, and, and that's a great thing I love about our ecosystem of, you know, multifamily operators is, I've got quite a few people I can call and go, hey, have you seen this kind of problem? You know, and, and how did you deal with it? Yeah, that's that's huge. Um, I think that when people get involved in real estate, me included, when I first got involved about five years ago, um, and I partnered on my first syndication with, with a gentleman by the name of Raj Gupta. I don't know if you're familiar with him um, out of Chicago. And he told me just that. He said, Darren, real estate is all about problem solving. And it surprised me because, you know, when you're not in the real estate world, what do you hear all the time? You just hear location, 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 right? And, and you don't realize the problems. And, you know, what you said about being a connector and about being able to find where, where to find the solution. I also believe that networking, you know, people think of networking is all about like finding partners and finding mm -hmm. Um, LPs to to invest in your deal, um, but it's also networking and building relationships with other operators, so that when you do have that problem that you're not familiar with, yep. like you said, you could call that person up, and within five minutes they may have a solution for you, which is which is crazy. Oh yeah, I mean you know there there's a ton of experience out there, and the one thing I've learned about real estate is that no two deals are exactly alike. Um, you know, no two loans are exactly alike, you know, it's, so it's, it's, it, everything's unique. Um, and every experience you have is unique. Uh, you know, that, that, that's both good and bad. It's good because it keeps things interesting. You, I can pretty much guarantee you, you know, a lot of people say, oh, real estate's boring. Well, it's boring up until it's not. You know, you know, when you get that call from your property manager and you go, oh, crap, 
you know, you better have a, what I like to refer to as my oh crap fund. You better have a pile of money sitting over here that you can go reach into and pull it out and throw it at the problem and make it go away because stuff happens. You know, you've got to be, you know, you've got to plan for that and you can't plan for everything exactly. You just have to plan for, hey, you know, stuff is going to happen uh, that you didn't think about, you didn't plan for, uh, and you better have some reserves in place to, to take care of that. Yep, absolutely. And, and so that's where experience and leveraging the experience of others definitely comes into play. You know, I've heard the phrase, another one of those. You know, so each one of those deals may be different and have different problems, but other people that you call to get guidance and wisdom from may, it may be just another one of those. They've had mm -hmm. that happen on multiple deals for them. And so they're like, this is the best way to handle that. Um, so you, you mentioned that, you know, there are learning lessons and there are problems that happen. So maybe talk about one of the ones that have come up on one of your deals and how did you and your team solve that? You know, one of them is, you know, we had, you know, a lender inspection come out and, you know, they, they pointed out a couple of things and, you know, one of them was there was a fence between us and another property. And, and this is just a very simple example. And and the residents of one property like to kick out pieces of the fence so they can cut through because it gives them a shortcut to get over to Walmart. And we actually it was actually part of the original lender requirements, which was to repair that fence. We had repaired the fence. We had sent them pictures. And then when they came back for this, you know, for their other inspection, they go, you know, hey, you know, there's more of this fence that's done. We need you to fix the fence again. Well, the way we ended up fixing the fence this time was we just took it out. Took out the fence. Yeah. I mean, you completely tore it down, cleaned it up. We had a guy come in and you know, he wrecked it out in less than a day and hauled everything away. So why did you guys make that decision? Well, I knew if we didn't take it down or replace it with something much more costly like wrought iron, we were going to continue repairing that fence every year. And, right. you know, it's it honestly, that's a waste of time for my maintenance guy, or it's a waste of money for the property if we have to hire a, you know, just a, you know, a handyman to come in and do it. Yep. Yep. Um, so you, I mean, you thought about, okay, they, you could just think about, all right, they told us to do this, so I'm just going to go do it. But then you, you guys took it another step further and you're like, look, this is going to keep coming up. Mm -hmm. And what, how, you know, what should we do? Because, you know, it's going to either be additional costs or different additional issues with time on our maintenance guy or additional issues every time the lender comes out. And this is how you guys decided to handle it. So um, you guys went one step further than what the, the lender was requiring you to do. Yeah, I mean, and I um, think, you know, from my experience in the IT world, you know, we always focus like when I'm doing production support or used to do production support, you don't just fix the problem right then because about and honestly, like 90 percent of the things you can fix is just reboot it, restart the system. You know, the, what we jokingly refer to as the standard Windows fix, reboot it, everything will be fine. Well, that's great. It fixes the problem now, but it doesn't fix the root cause. And so you've got to dig in and go, well, how can I fix this problem so that it never happens again? And, you know, you, you always want to ask that question. 
maybe there's nothing you can do, but right. you always want to move closer to, you know, how can I reduce the occurrences of this problem or how can I eliminate it completely? That's great. So uh, another fence story, you know, on my, on my first syndication, um, there was one side of the property that the fence was falling down. It was really ugly. It didn't look good. And I was a new operator. Thankfully, I was teamed up with a, an experienced guy. And, you know, from my perspective, I just wanted to fix that side of the property. And my partner was like, you know, Darren, hey, if we're going to fix that part, we really should put fencing around the entire property and make it all look the same rather than, and it'll dress it up. And, and I, I was thinking that, you know, that's not money well spent. After we, I did do it. And after we did it, the tenants loved it. It made the property look so much mm -hmm. better. It really, it really had a big impact on the property. Um, so that again goes to somebody that had more experience than me that had, you know, um, you know, a great idea that, that we ran with. Um, so, Hey, talk about, uh, I know you're a big risk guy, um, risk in terms of like looking at each individual that is going to invest in an opportunity and what their investor risk profile is. Um, how do you work with different investors that have different risk profiles? Well, so the first thing I do with any investor, you know, they, they can walk in the door and start throwing, you know, $100,000 checks at me. And I'm going to go, hey, wait, look, you know, I appreciate that you're excited about the deal and that you and then that you love the team. But I need to understand, you know, where you're coming from as an investor, you know, because honestly, some of them have never really thought about, you know, what is their risk profile? You know, they they think they know. Um, multifamily investing or syndications in general. Um, but quite often they've never really considered, you know, because I mean, I, I, and I get it. Nobody likes to think about, well, gee, you know, I could put money into this and never see that money again. And I need to know that they're comfortable, you know, with that being one of the possible outcomes. Now, do I ever want that to happen? No, because I have my own money invested alongside them. I, I won't I won't promote a deal uh, or, you know, work on a deal that I'm not invested in as well. So I, you know, I, and that's the other thing I want them to know. I said, I look at that as kind of a risk reduction item for my investors is, you know, if I if I don't have money in the deal, I am. I mean, honestly, I'm probably not going to pay quite as close attention to it as if I had my own money in it. And so that's one of the things I always tell my investors to ask. I said, make sure the GPs have some skin in the game. Make sure they're going to be paying attention, um, you know, and then also, you know, just from a general risk perspective, you know, they need to understand what are the different risk items for the different class of properties, you know, A, B, C, D. We don't talk about D a lot because a lot of people don't invest in those. You know, that's the really old, ugly, you know, burned out, you know, you know, got homeless people living in them, et cetera. And, you know, I, I don't want to tackle one of those. Uh, you know, we're doing a pretty heavy value add on the, on the deal we've got going right now, uh, which is, you know, it's a 506C deal. 
so we can talk about it a little bit. Ideally, we'll be wrapped up here at the end of November. But, you know, you've got to know, you know, it's Class C property. There's issues potentially with, you know, the electrical systems, with the plumbing systems, uh, with the roof. Those are risk items. And, you know, I tell people, you know, go read the PPM. There's 14 or 15 pages of things in there of stuff that can go wrong. You need to at least, I said, you don't need to be intimately familiar with all of them. What you should be doing, and and an SEC attorney that we probably both know, um, you know, I, I, I partially blame him for my real estate addiction because he explained the PPM to me in layman's terms. And he said, that 14 or 15 pages are all th- reasons you should not invest in this deal. He goes, that shouldn't scare you. He goes, the only reason that should scare you if, if those pages are missing. He goes, what, those, what that should cue you to do is go talk to your GP and go, hey, how are you mitigating all of these 14 or 15 pages worth of things? And honestly, 80% of it is having the correct insurance on the property. The other 20% is doing a thorough due diligence on the property. And, you know, if those two things are done, if you, if, if you know that, uh, that you've got good insurance and it covers the things that need to be covered, um, and you've done a very thorough due diligence on the property, that significantly reduces the risk to your investors. Yeah, I, I like a few things that you said there. One, the one especially is that, you know, it gives, I think, a lot of comfort to somebody that's about to, to send over $100,000 that you're like, wait, you know, don't, you know, I'm, I appreciate that you're interested, but, you know, I don't want your money unless I know that you're the right fit for this. And that, you know, people, people love, you know, buying things they can't have, having things they can't have, investing in things they, they can't have. So that gives a lot of uh, comfort, I think, to, to an investor that, hey, look, this guy is so willing to spend extra time with me and educate mm-hmm. me that, you know, he's willing to part ways with, with my funds. He's, he's that confident that he'll find other people, you know, um, now, one thing I'm, I may differ on you on is, is like I'm an LP in a lot of deals. I'm a GP in a lot of deals. I have money invested in a lot of multifamily properties. If I'm a GP and I have other people's money that, you know, is those are the deals that like I, I could lose money on my own money, right? But mm-hmm. I don't want to lose anybody else's money. No. You know, so... Like I am definitely focused on deals that other investors have put money into because I don't want that. Although there are a ton of risks and, and risks that are sometimes completely out of our control. Um, some risks that are in our control. And, um, but when there's other people's money involved, you know, I think that that's, that's something that um, most you know, syndicators are, are really focused on making sure that there's preservation of capital yes. for, for the investors. So let, let's talk about fear, you know? So a lot of people, when they first want to get involved in real estate, they want to get involved, but they're afraid to pull the trigger. And then now in today's market, you have 
higher interest rates. You've got bad press related to commercial real estate. You've got uh, potential recession, you know. So how do you get over that fear? You know, I... I ask myself that every day because like like I told you earlier, we're right in the middle of a capital raise and there's a lot of investors that are kind of, they're on the sidelines right now. And, you know, sometimes I just want to reach out and grab them and go stop watching the news, um, you know, because there's a lot of stuff going on in the news that, you know, it, it's really designed to stoke everybody's fear. And to a certain degree, you know, some of it's warranted, right? I mean, we all know there's, you know, tough economic times. Um, you know, people are complaining about the interest rate. I, I think you and I have probably both seen interest rates up around 18 to 20 percent. Um, so when they when they go, oh, this is terrible. I go, no, this is not terrible. This is normal. This is a normal. What's what's not normal was the speed with which we got the to speed. the interest rates we're at. Right. That's what caused a lot of the problems, um, you know, I, and I think what's going to happen is we're going to see it hold here longer. Now, as far as telling the investors, you know, you can't tell them don't be afraid. Right. I mean. Right. No, I mean, you know, it's like taking it's a, a kid to a haunted it. house and telling them don't be afraid. <laughs> you know, well, also, we don't have a crystal ball. Right. Like we could have our opinion on what's going to happen, mm -hmm. you know, but, you know, that. That scary thing could happen, you know. It's just probably not. Yeah. It's the probability percentage is probably much lower than they they fear. But um, and I think education is really you know goes a long way toward helping handle that fear. Um, and and by that I mean you know if you're looking at a deal, look at the deal. I mean look at the fundamentals. You know. Is it a solid property? Is it a, in a solid location? Is the team does the team have good debt on it versus bad debt? So you need to know enough about debt to make a decision. You know, it, does that debt fit your risk profile? You know, are they are they uh, getting? Well, talk about that. What is what is good debt versus bad debt? Well, so anytime that you can get fixed rate debt on something and all your numbers work. That's always a better choice, in my opinion. There's some people out there that'll tell you, oh, yeah, in the long run, you know, floating rate debt will be cheaper in the long run. Well, that's great if you've got deep pockets and you can cover that interest rate going all over the place. Um, if you can't, then that's a risk. And, you know, and I know some people that had floating rate debt and they didn't have rate caps. Um you know, now you can't get floating rate debt without, you know, the lender saying, oh, no, no, you've got to you got to pay this extra, you know, depending on how big the loan is, anywhere from, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars to a few million dollars to get a rate cap to cover yourself. Um, so going in and knowing what your fixed cost is uh, for debt to know, hey, I'm going to pay X amount a month in debt. Um, that is lower risk than, you know, if it's floating. Right. So I'm, I'm in agreement with that. I, I would say that um, anytime you can have fixed rate debt and the numbers work, that that is the better option. Um, you know, I've 
I've been in the loan trading space also since uh, the early 2000s and, and um, we're in the Great Recession, you know, 2007 to 10, 12, um, where I saw people get hurt were the ones that where the loans came due in a terrible economy and cap rates were up and, um, you know, they, they had to come to the table with extra funds and they didn't have it. So the bank would take over the property. And so now the challenge is back in 2021 and 2022, it was very difficult to make deals work with fixed rate debt. The agencies, it, it just, the numbers didn't work. So sponsors were doing floating rate deals. Um, and then and a lot of times they were getting cap, uh, caps on the deals um, and the ones that have caps are, you know, protected. Although one of the things that I don't think that they thought through and understood, and I don't, because of the speed in terms of how far, how fast interest rates went up was the escrow reserves. So they may have been able to, you know, look at the risk and say, you know what, I've got a one point, you know, risk that it could go up based on my cap or two points it can go up and, and we could still be cash flowing, you know. But now all of a sudden, say you did a floater, seven-year floater, and it was you know, a three-year cap. After year two, you have to start to reserve for a new cap. And that reserve could all of a sudden be tremendous, like, and a lot of deals are really hurting cash flow wise because of that. Um, and I don't think that a lot of people understood that that was a, a risk. And, and quite frankly, I mean, even with knowing that a lot of deals went south, I didn't realize the impact of that either. And I'm an LP and some deals that have that going on. Um, so in any event, um, that's, that's one factor that people have to look at. So when we're talking about fear, you know, one fear is that we fall into a massive recession. Everyone, you know, people are losing their jobs. Don't, people don't have money. People can't pay their mortgage, can't pay their rent. Um, so that is one, one fear. Um, if inflation was to go, you know, it's coming down now, but if it was to turn around and go higher... Well, then, you know, you have wage inflation. Wage, if wages go up, you, you would think that people have more money to be able to pay higher rents. So rents could, in theory, go up with inflation. Um, and, and then third is in a recession, interest rates could come down. And if interest rates come down, then that could help debt service. So there's a lot of different factors that could play out. It could be beneficial or it could be, you know, a, a negative. I, I personally think that the key is being able to survive through any challenges. If, um, you know, if you have the, the capital, if you have the, the cash to survive, you will figure out a way to get through it. But if you're you don't have the cash, then, you know, there's not much that you can do. Yeah. You got to, you know, one of the things I always tell my investors, I said, you know, 
uh, we always have a reserve. Uh, you know, we always raise more money than we need to cover our uh, the loan and, and the capex. Um, just because stuff happens, and you know, like I told you earlier, I, I refer to that as my "oh crap" fund. So when the property manager calls you and you go, "Oh crap." Well, you've got money there to reach in and take care of it and, and fix the issue and you move on. Right. Yep. I, I totally agree. So um, what about your fear? Like, so when did, what, what's your background with investing? Like, did you just get started in, in real estate investing when you joined the Sumrock Group a few years ago? Or were you investing in Single family before that, small multifamily, like how, what was, what's your background there? So my wife and I actually got started uh, passive investing about a dozen years ago um, in multifamily. Um, we went through uh, another group um, and did not like the way they they did things. You know, they weren't doing anything wrong. It's just we didn't like how they ran things. Sure. It wasn't your style. Wasn't our style. But I met several people, got involved with them, did some investments and, uh, you know, and those have done pretty well. Um, And if you fast forward to November of 2020, uh, my wife and I were sitting around the kitchen table talking about our finances and what retirement was going to look like. And we came to the realization that the bill of goods that Wall Street and corporate America had sold us (laughs) wasn't quite all it was cracked up to be. I mean, yeah, you know, don't get me wrong. We had money in a 401k and we'd had an okay retirement, but we'd had to cut back on our standard of living and what we give to our church and charities and cut back on our travel. And we didn't want to cut back on anything going into retirement. We actually wanted to step it up a notch. So we asked ourselves, how can we do that? And for us, the answer was syndicating real estate. So we looked at several different programs and uh, my wife found Brad's program and she really clicked with Brad because He's from Pittsburgh. She's from Pittsburgh. He's an engineer. She's an engineer, you know, so and and she liked the way he did things. So she goes, hey, you need to go to this rat race thing. And um, so she signed me up and off I went. I came back pumped up and she said, "Okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to jump in head first and and just hit it hard. And and that's what we did. Uh, You know, the first six months, I felt like I was spinning my wheels. You know, I was getting out there, you know, networking, underwriting, meeting people, more underwriting, looking at properties, meeting brokers, going to events, you know, all the stuff that you need to be doing to uh, start making all the connections that you need because real estate is very much a team sport. I mean, you can do it by yourself, but you'd be kind of crazy too, Um, especially if you want to do it right. Um, And so, you know, we've uh, you know, we got our first property under contract in uh, November of 21. Um, and, you know, we're, that was the one that had the fence issue, by the way. Um, gotcha. And, you know, it, it's going along great. You know, we've been doing regular uh, distributions to our investors um, and it's just chugging along. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a different world. And um, how do you... Like when you when you got involved with the, your first deal, that November twenty one deal, how did like how did you get pushed past the fear of doing that deal? Uh, you know, I think at that point, you know, I had spent six months, you know, searching, underwriting, 
underwriting, you know, talking to people. And it is a little scary when you, you know, when you sign on that multi-million dollar loan the first time. Um, But having partners that had done it before made it a lot less scary. Yeah. And, you know, it's, um, I, again, I kind of go back to, you know, having that ecosystem and that connection of people that have been there and done that. Um, you know, my daddy always said, you know, mistakes are okay as long as you don't make the same ones over and over, but the best mistakes to learn from are somebody else's. Yeah. And, you know, if you can leverage other people, uh, yeah, there's always going to be a little, a little bit of fear, but I think for me, um, uh, the, the biggest thing was, you know, the, the comfort of knowing that I had partners uh, that had experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a few things there. One, one is, you know, I've asked that question to a lot of different syndicators and I've heard a lot of syndicators say the same thing. Like they thought to themselves, what's the worst thing that could happen? Mm-hmm. What's the worst thing that can happen? And, you know, I have to go back to my job or I stay in my job longer than I wanted to or, or whatever the case might be. Can I live with that? Yes. What's the probability of something good happening? Well, you got into the deal because you had confidence that the deal was yeah. a good deal. So there's a higher probability that the deal is going to be go well. And so that helped each of them get into it. And, the, and a lot of times that first deal was the scariest for them. Mm-hmm. And then they go on to other bigger ones because they have the experience and they've done that. Um, so, you know, but it's scary for, for a lot of people to pull the trigger, you know, whether it's on their first GP deal um, or whether it's being a first time passive investor. So my son recently graduated Texas A&M and he's uh, got his first job. And he's living at home and I've, you know, told him that, hey, buy a duplex, threeplex, fourplex, mm-hmm. you know, live in one unit and rent the others out. And so he's trying to do that. And, um, you know, part of that is like, hey, dude, you got to get out and drive these properties. Mm-hmm. You got to go into the area and look at it. You got to, you got to find out what the insurance costs. You got to find, you know, so I remember when, just like you, when I was first looking, I had a 64-unit deal that I was bidding on, and it was the first LOI I was putting in. And I put the LOI in, and my wife was like, you know, are you excited? And I was like, I'm scared shitless. Like, what happens if they yeah. say yes? Like, <laughs> like, I don't know if I'm ready, right? And then, and I lost that deal, but it gave me confidence as to where things were trading. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I wasn't overpaying and that my underwriting was working. And then I kept underwriting deals and I was, you know, losing this deal and losing that deal and losing it. And then all of a sudden I found, and there, there, this deal doesn't work. This deal doesn't work. The numbers don't work. And then all of a sudden I find a deal and I'm like, holy cow, this deal is awesome. And I'm like, you know, to the broker, like, I want the deal now. Like, how can we lock this up? Like, because you've, You've got the confidence you've, because mm-hmm. you've got the experience, because you've looked at so many other deals, you have that extra confidence. Yeah. And I think the same thing happens with, and I, you, you, started, you said you started investing passively 
12 years ago, you know, for me, it was five years ago. Um, I wasn't sure, you know, yeah. the first time I wired 75 grand, I was like, you know, am I ever going to see that money again? Right. Will I ever see that again? And then, you know, and then I did another deal and another deal. And then all of a sudden, you know, you do a deal and then you, you, you really didn't do anything after you wired the money. And then two, mm-hmm. three years later, all of a sudden I get my money back plus double it. Um, I'm like, holy cow, this thing is really great way to, to build wealth. Oh yeah. But in the beginning, it's scary. Yeah. And you know, and that's what I tell the investors. I say, you know, everybody loves to look at, you know, what are the returns going to be, you know, and you always, you have to remember, it's not always going to be rainbows and unicorns. You know, you, you've got to, you have to ask those questions like, well, yeah, this is a great deal if everything goes according to plan, but what if it doesn't? Yeah. And, and on, on that same note, I've had plenty of investors that say like, how do I know it's a good deal and not good deal? Hey, I, Darren, I just got this deal and it, you know, it has this great projected return. And I'm like, look, almost every deal I see has like the same return profile, you know, somewhere between six and, well, it used to be 8%, but maybe now it's more like five and seven, 7%, 5% um, for cash on cash and, and, you know, 1.8 to 2.2 equity multiple, Mm -hmm. you know, double your money in five years. Uh, And so they're like, well, how do you know what's a good deal and what's a bad deal if they're all looking the same? And, you know, for me, you know, first I want to focus on what markets I like. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I like growth markets like Dallas and Arizona and Carolinas and Tennessee. Yep. And I haven't done any deals in Florida, but I would do something in Florida, um, Colorado. But then I want to focus on the people who are running the deals, you know, and yep. Who am I comfortable with? Who do I have a relationship with? Who, who can I pick up the phone and call if I have a question? Um, that's different about these syndications. You, you can actually call the person that's running the deal and ask questions. Yeah. You can't do that if you buy Amazon stock. No. You know, yeah, nobody's, Jeff Bezos nobody's gonna, is not going to take my call. He's not going to take your call, right? So you, you're just going to look at your ticker symbol and you're either up or down and if Look, anybody out there that has bought stocks, I've, you know, you've got green and you've got red. I, almost everybody's portfolio, you've you've bought a stock that has gone down after you bought it. Um, so, but and you can't call a person, but with syndications you can. So I would I would focus on the markets, the people, and then you work on look at the deal, mm-hmm. you know, and look at whether the deal is. Is it in an area that you like? Is it, you know, does the business plan make sense? Do the numbers look conservative? Um, How do you know if the numbers look conservative? Well, you know, you can just guess or you can spend the time to look at these deals. Mm -hmm. Get on people's investor webinars. You know, listen to other questions that other investors have at the Q&A at the end. And you learn from that. So there's... It's also possible to be an educated passive investor. Yeah. And, and, and you've hit one of my hot buttons. Um, I really dislike the term passive investor because you as an investor should not be passive. Uh, you should actually put in some work, 
you know, get get to know the deal a little bit. Get definitely get to know the people. And, and if you're one of these people that you know you really don't get into the analyzing the deal, then I would suggest very strongly that you invest the time to get to know the GP team really well, so that you know, hey, I can trust them to do what they say they're going to do. And then you don't do the analysis. I don't recommend not doing the analysis. I, I, I'm, I'm an analysis guy, so I have, to, I have to do the analysis. But first and foremost, I have to trust that GP team. You know, if I'm going to invest money with Darren Batchelder, I need to know, you know, Darren's looking at a lot of the same things I'm looking at. You know, he's, uh, he's not going out there and making crazy decisions that uh, are going to, you know, increase the risk. He's going to try to do everything he can to reduce and manage that risk. Um, you know, it, but yeah, I agree. I mean, those are the two main things is educate yourself so that you, you know, you at least need to know enough to ask the right questions of the GP team. That's the minimum level of education. And the thing is, is that, you know, with, you know, you're an LP, you're a GP, right? Yes. But you're also an LP in a bunch of other deals. Mm-hmm. Well, if the GP in a deal that you're an LP in is having a challenge, you may have had that challenge on one of your properties and you guys solved it. Mm-hmm. And so even though you're an LP, you may have a potential solution to call that GP and say, hey, look, I don't know if you guys have thought about this, yeah. you know, but here's what we did on this other property. And now collectively, you know, the GP just wants a positive outcome. They don't care where the, where the, where the solution comes from. So if you can help, you're part of the team, you know? So yeah. yes, you're passive. Most of the work for a passive investor, and you don't like the term passive, but you know, most of the work is before you you uh, wire the money, Mm -hmm. you know, you legally, you don't have much control once you wire the money. Having said that, if there are challenges and you've seen something on another deal that you're invested in, whether you're an LP or GP, you could communicate that and help Mm -hmm. your team. Well, and then you've also hit on another one of my hot buttons, which is communication. Uh, The GP team has to be, um, dedicated to communicating things out to the investors, good or bad. Um, Because you need to know what's going on with your money. Right. So here's, you know, it's funny when you talked about your kitchen table discussion with you and your wife and talking about your 401k. And and I had the same experience. Like my, you know, I had invested always in stocks and, and mutual funds and ETFs and um, and my 401ks had increased over time, but nowhere near what I thought they should have over, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And, you know, so you st- it starts making you think. And I, I reflected back on myself and I said, it's my fault. Like my fault is that I just took money. I listened to what I was told take 10, 20%, put it off into a 401k, let somebody else manage it, and it's just going to grow. So once the money went over there, I just let somebody else deal with it. I didn't, I wasn't accountable for my own money. I think that's the first step 
is that people have to be accountable for all of their resources, for all of their investments. And, you know, maybe you have all of your investments in stocks and you don't like the volatility. Well, take a portion. You don't have to go all in in real estate, but take a portion and and try it and see what works best, you know? And, and that's what we did. see the returns. Yeah. So you, so you dabbled with it first. Yeah. We, we started then, as passives and we put, we, we, we invested in one deal and, you know, and then it took several years for that deal to go full cycle. And we go, Hey, we really like this. I mean, now the guy really just knocked it out of the park. We got like three and a half times our money and it cash flows <laughs> 12 to 14%. Nice. Again, like I say, this was 12 years ago. Um, and it was back when if you didn't have at least 10% cash on cash return, people wouldn't even look at your deal. Uh, but, you know, we, we went from that one passive investment uh, to we got into another one and then we got into a couple more. And, you know, now we're in like, I don't know, 14 or 15 different deals. Uh, and we've had a couple that have gone full cycle. So I think we've had That's four awesome. that have gone full cycle. And, you know, we're in like, you know, 3,500 units total, about 500 of those right now are GP deals and the rest of them are, are passive. And, you know, it's just been a, you know, a, a growth thing. But as we got more and more comfortable with the idea, you know, we've moved more of our money out of the stock market and into real estate because we realize, you know, for our long term you know, family wealth and to support the retirement that we want to have and that we will have. Um, you know, we we're I, I don't know if you knew or not, but we went on vacation back in February to Antarctica and we spent about a month down in South America and and Antarctica. Well, our next trip is in May. It's to the Arctic. So we're going to be sailing out of Norway. And my wife just added another trip that she wants to do to Morocco uh, in the fall of next year. So we love to travel. And, you know, if we just had money in the stock market, you know, the stock market goes up and down kind of pretty wild swings. Uh, it would be tough for us to go, okay, well, hey, we need, we need to pull money out to pay for this trip, but all our stocks are down and we don't want to do that right now. So, you know, right. we still have some money in the stock market because Terry loves to play the stock market. And, you know, and she's actually pretty good at it when she has time to, to focus on it. But, you know, you got to figure out what's what's the balance for you. Absolutely. And like, you know, people always talk about freedom and financial freedom and time freedom. And, and there you go. I mean, I know my, my wife and I bought an RV and, and um, you had mentioned that you you guys had a goal of I can't remember what your goal was, but it was some crazy goal on, with um, with your travel in terms of how many countries you wanted to visit. Um, oh, yeah. We, well, we've got several. We want to we wanna have our, our picture taken in front of all 50 state capitals. And I think we've got six left. Um, and then, uh, you know, we want to hit all seven continents. Well, eight, if you, if you, you know, if you count uh, the new one, Zealandia, which is, you know, incorporates uh, New Zealand and a lot of the islands in the Pacific. Um, now, I personally have been to all eight continents, uh, but we want to do them together. So we've still got to go to uh, Asia uh, and uh, and Australia together. 
It, it's amazing. If, look, if you if you stay in corporate America, and I'm look, there's some people that that's what they love it, and you know there's an opportunity for them to still invest in real estate while they they're in corporate America and they're but. Like my son, he's just starting work. And he's getting two weeks vacation per year. Yeah. To me, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, that's. You know, you, you went for a month, you know, like that, you know, investing in real estate gives you the opportunity to do that, but it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. You know, it, it's a, it's a wealth building. It takes time to build that wealth, but it gives you the opportunity to have that time freedom and that financial freedom. So Hey, Sean, how do people reach out to you if they want to get to know you and your company better? Yeah, uh, that's great, Darren. Thank you. Uh, it's TWT, that's Tango Whiskey Tango Multifamily.com. That's our website. If you want to book a call, it's uh, book A call. So it'd be TWT Multifamily Book a Call. That's awesome. In addition, you said that you were writing a book before we. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what, in, what is that book about? Why did why did you decide to write it? Well, so what was it for? Um, I've always wanted to write a book, and I've got two or three ideas run, running around in my head. And this one just made a lot of sense because of what we're focused on right now, which is you know building our multifamily portfolio. It talks about real estate and travel. So two of the things I love to talk about, and it's really focused on. Uh, accredited investors and helping them build a real estate portfolio that will support their travel habits, uh, either their existing travel habits, or maybe they want to up their travel game and, and hey, I want to move from coach to first class, or, you know, I want to, I want to go from first class to private, you know, you figure out what's your budget, and then you kind of work backwards from that to figure out how do I structure my portfolio, uh, and you got to look at it as a kind of a longer game. So, you, you know, because like you said, real estate's not a get rich quick thing. It takes time. So, you know, it, I'm, and I'm really targeting people that are in their, you know, early to mid 50s to say, hey, if you haven't started thinking about retirement, now's a good time to do that because now you can start building a real estate portfolio that will help you support the travel that you want to do when you get ready to retire. That's awesome. I, I love that you're doing it on two things that you love, real estate and travel. You know, it's, that's, you know, because if you, if you can focus on things that you really enjoy, you know, then you're giving back to other people mm -hmm. that have common interests, you know, so that's huge. So, Sean, thank you for coming on. I um, appreciate you sharing your journey. Um, look forward to seeing you at the next event. And uh, listeners, I hope they enjoyed that one. Until next week, sign off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.